0: be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 19 through 27. I want to uh, acknowledge uh, again God's mercy and uh, just God's kindness. Uh, Dale, Joanna Lee back in service with us. Praise the Lord. You know Dale is back to full health when he's insulting you again. Unfortunately, I was the object of those insults. No, I'm glad to see that well, I can't say I'm glad to see his humor back, but glad to see he's back to normal, health-wise. Well, um, we'll be in again, First Corinthians chapter nine, verses nineteen through twenty-seven. Once you have uh, arrived there at that text, would you please stand in the reading of God's word? It says this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the week. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and we pray, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth, and that we live, God, by your word alone. Man lives by not bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. And so God, open up our eyes, open up our Ears, open up our hearts to hear, to see, believe, and do, God, and that God, Your Spirit working in us would motivate, compel us to fruit and to sharing the good news. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, this morning's sermon, if you have not been here uh, with us in First Corinthians, that we've been working our way through First Corinthians week after week after week. And here where we get to is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. And it's actually a, con- a continuation of the con- conversation that we've been having here in 1 Corinthians 9. And so Shane, a few weeks ago, covered 1 Corinthians 8, talking about the, the meat sacrificed to idols and how we're to help our brothers who, who might be weaker and who struggle with those kind of things. And so we're uh, moving on, and the same theme and kind of... Uh, um, theme is kind of woven into the fabric of 1 Corinthians 9 too, is that we're still in that conversation about Paul surrendering his rights for the sake of others. And now we're hearing here of why he does that and how he does that particularly. And that ultimately he, he does it in order not to create an obstacle in the way for people of the gospel and to ultimately win some to the gospel. And so in order for, you know, what this requires of him is discipline in order to surrender his rights. And so that's what we're going to see this morning here in this text, is that basically the main point what we're going to get to is this, is that we as Christians, and what Paul is teaching us here in 1 Corinthians 9, is that we must strategically, emphasis on strategically, emphasis on strategically, minister and spiritually discipline ourselves for the sake of the gospel with our eye on the eternal goal we must strategically minister strategically minister and spiritually discipline ourselves for the sake of the gospel with our eye on the eternal goal so we're gonna look at two points this morning is first the first point is this paul's mission strategy and that will be in the first couple verses nineteen through twenty three and we're going to be looking at that kind of idea of what's Paul's mission strategy in order to win some and to the gospel. And we're all familiar with the phrase, when in Rome, what? Do as the Romans do. Do as the Romans do. So basically, when you're in Rome, when you're in a place, you kind of take on their same, uh, similar uh, way of life and their dress and things like that. You know, I, I find it funny that we kind of see this in politicians a little bit. So when politicians who are campaigning or something like that, when they're in D.C., they're wearing suits, they're wearing nice dress-up, but when they're, in, uh, when they're in rural Nebraska, they ain't wearing suits. You know, they're, they're dressed down. They're, you know, it's, it's overalls now, right? When they come to dry prong, they ain't dressing up there because nobody owns a suit. And so they're, they're trying to take on the way of life of dry prong people. Uh, and and look like them, talk like them, and and things like that. This is what politicians do. And the reason they do this is uh, that they don't, the reason they wear suits in D.C. and they don't wear them in dry prong is that they're trying to relate with people, right? They're trying to relate with them and sympathize with them and kind of get on their level in order to get their vote, right? To get their vote in order to win a hearing with them. And this is similar to what Paul is describing here in verses 19 through 23 about his personal mission strategy it is like politicians who change from suits to overalls in order to relate with people in order to get on their level to win their vote in a sense is that Paul does the same thing as becoming a Jew, becoming a Gentile, doing like Jews and Gentiles do in order to win many to the gospel. And so Paul's strategy is to win people to the gospel without compromising the gospel itself. We've got to put, a, again, an emphasis on that. Paul's strategy is to win people to the gospel without compromising the gospel, and it's all because of the gospel. Let's look at this in these first couple of verses. Is that, again, these verses here, 19 through 27, instill still continuation of what we've been talking about Paul surrendering his rights for the sake of others and all. Ultimately we'll find out is to win them to the gospel. And now he's talking about why he does this. Well, there's a couple of key words I want you to maybe circle, underline here that are really important. Is first, he says the word become over and over and over again here in these verses. Six times the word become is brought out here. So he says this: I became, or even in verse 19, I made myself. Verse 20, I became says it again in verse 20, I became, verse 21, I became, verse 22, I became, verse 22 again, I become, is that over and over again, Paul is saying, I'm doing something, I'm accommodating, I'm adapting to my culture, I'm becoming something, Jew, Gentile, under the law, not under the law, weak, all these things, is that he is adapting and accommodating for the purpose of the gospel in the environments he's in, he becomes things. You even see that just from the first verse is this, is that though he is free from all, he's a free man, he's not bound by the law because he is now in Christ Jesus, he is free from all, but even despite him being free from all and not being uh, enslaved to anyone, he makes himself a slave. Yet his status and his role and his rights are of a free man, but he makes himself a slave. That's his status. That's his position in life. Free, not under the law. Now, why would Paul do something like that? Why would a person of such status, privilege, position, free, not under the law, make himself what we would deem as something worse, right? Worse off. Why, if you're free, why would you make yourself a slave to somebody else? If you're not under the law, why would you put yourself under the law? Why would you do those things? Why would Paul relinquish the benefits? and the privileges of his status and position. Well, he says another key word throughout this. Gain. Win. Save. Look at this. He says this a number of times, five times actually. He says, I do this that I might win more of them. Verse 20, win Jews. Again, verse 20, win those under the law. Verse 21, Win those outside the law. Verse 22, win the weak. Verse 22 again, save some. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Is that he's taking on kind of a new status, despite his status being free, not under the law or anything. He's becoming things. I become, I become, I become. And here's the purpose he does these things. To win others. To gain some. To even save some. With the gospel. He becomes, in order to win people to the gospel, he accommodates to the Jews, to those under the law, to the Gentiles, to the weak. He does these things for all people in order that he may win some to the gospel that he has been transformed and saved by. Now, what does Paul's accommodating look like? Or what does is, what is accommodating look like in, in in a sense? Because this might raise some red flags for you and say, ooh, that." Uh, you, you we're towing a, towing a line here, accommodating or, uh, or, or even compromising or even adapting. What does that look like? Well, let me give you an example from my own personal experience. Uh, I've told you that Meyer and I have spent some time in Ecuador working with the Sauchel, the people of Ecuador that live way back in the jungles. And, uh, and so there is some accommodation that we have to do when we work with indigenous tribes, right? Now, let me just give you, I'll just tell you, we didn't pull up in a big tour bus, I didn't pull up wearing a three-piece suit when I I got to these these, indigenous people groups. I didn't say, hey, where's the air-conditioned hut over here? I want to go to the air-conditioned hut. Hey, uh, where's the three-course meal, anything like that? Is it? No. When we went there, we tried to live like they did in those moments in order to win some to the gospel. I didn't go in there and say, hey, look, I'm here just to teach you the Bible, Look, I, you know, Satchel, so I'm, I'm just here to teach you the Bible. I'm here to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you about who Jesus is. And that's all that matters. Just as long as I get that message out, just as long as I tell you about those things, it doesn't matter how I do it, what, you know, where I live, or, or, or if I, if I want to you know, play video games all day on my tour bus and then come out at night and teach the Bible. No, no, those things happen. And you know why? Because they would not have listened, would they? They would not have listened. They would not. And so, when we... This is what accommodating and adapting may look like in, in Christian missions and in the Christian life. Is that we adapt to where people are at. And this is what Paul's saying. Is that in these situations, in these scenarios, with these different people, like I adapted to their cultures and to their ways of life when, to a certain degree, when it was not compromising the gospel itself. Let me give you a couple examples from Paul's own life where he did some adaptation and accommodation in order to win some people to the gospel, to win a hearing with people. If you remember Acts 17, when Paul is there in Athens at the Areopagus, and he begins speaking to them and telling them all about what God has done throughout the world and things like that. And you know what he does right in the middle of that, that paragraph is that he actually quotes one of their own poets. He quotes one of their own poets. One of those guys, that you, you, you know, everybody in the room would be like, oh yeah, we know that poet. Well, he quotes the poet in order to share the gospel with them. So he uses something that they understand, something that they know, something that they would be familiar with, in order to share the gospel with them. That is accommodating. That is adapting to a culture. Here's another uh, scenario, again from Acts. This is Acts 16. Is that... Um, Paul's on his missionary journey, and he comes across Timothy, uh, who is a believer, and he wants to bring Timothy on with him to this ministry. And he circumcises Timothy because they're about to go share the gospel with Jews. Listen to this. This is Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. His father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So in order for for Paul and Timothy to have a beneficial and effective ministry there among the Jews, is that he had Timothy circumcised so that they could effectively minister there. That is a form of accommodation. This wasn't for salvation purposes. We've got to be very clear with that. Because I know that we, you know, in the Bible, particularly in Galatians and things like that, is that circumcision is kind of used as a symbol or an instrument of, this is salvific. This is going to save you. You must be circumcised in order to be saved. This is not Paul's intent here. Paul is not thinking about salvation. He's thinking about strategy. Mission strategy. And so Paul, even in his own life, accommodates and adapts for people in order to win some and win a hearing to the gospel. And Paul goes on to say this I become all these things to gain to gain to gain. And then in verse 23 what is his reason for doing all these things? He says it's all for the sake of the gospel. Is that Paul does all these things not for personal gain gain or for uh, a accommod- you know uh, basically being applauded and he doesn't even do this to make the gospel more palatable for people. He does this all for the sake of the gospel. That this is his motivation. This is his this is his reasoning behind why he is becoming a Jew, becoming a slave, becoming weak and all these to all these different peoples. It's all because of the gospel. Is that Paul will take any foothold, any inch, any leverage That he can be given in order to win some to the gospel. All because and for the sake of the gospel. And that the goal of this is his becoming to gain for the sake of the gospel. Is that he may share with them in its blessings. Verse 23. Is that they together, him and the people that he shares with, that they may together share in the blessings and the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they too, like him, will be partakers of the grace of what Philippians 1.7 says. Is that not just Paul to put himself up on a higher echelon of spirituality, like, hey, the Corinthians are here and Paul's up here. He's saying, no, I'm sharing this with you and I'm accommodating for you. That together, when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may partake of it together. Its grace and its benefits. If any of you go to a restaurant and you split a meal, you might do that. You go, you know, the the waiter's like waiting for you to give both your orders. know, like, oh, we're sharing. And you're like, cheapskates. We're we're, sh- we're gonna sh- we're gonna split it. It's, it's a big plate. It's a big plate, and the waiter's like, yeah, I know. I've seen the plate before. Yeah and you split it and you do that because you both enjoy the plate you both enjoy eating off of it together you both like you you both like looking like you know animals like around the same trough and you know and you both enjoy it because you're both partaking of the same thing and that's why you order the same thing. You order the same, you know, the one plate and you partake of it together. And he's saying this, is that this gospel isn't just for you, it's for me. And the benefits aren't just for me, it's for you as well. And together, when you believe this gospel, because I've accommodated, because I, I, I've become a Jew, become weak, and I've done this all for the sake of the gospel and not for any personal gain, is together we get to partake of the benefits of the grace of Jesus together. That's what gets to happen. And so this is why he does it. And so, what does this mean for us, church? As we see Paul here in his mission strategy and how he reaches people, well, I think for us, Crosspoint, what we need to think about is this. Is that our approach to ministry, our approach to missions, evangelism, whatever it may be, our approach to reaching people with the gospel must be adaptable, but it must not be compromisable. We've got to be very clear with that. Is that, We must be adaptable, but we must not be compromisable. And so, let's think about this. What does it mean for us, church, as Christians, to be adaptable but not compromisable? Where is the line between the two? Let's think about adaptable for for a second. Is that our approach to sharing the gospel, we have to be adaptable, and we have to take into into consideration different things and different factors in a person, like their age, (laughs) right? Right? Their stage of life, different things going on. Is that the way that we share the gospel with a four-year-old is not the same way that we share the gospel with a Ph.D. Right? I mean, if I go and I share the gospel with you know my four-year-old or Hayes that you saw his picture, hey Hayes, um, have you been justified by faith? Are you being sanctified right now? Has Christ atoned for your sin? And Hayes is like, right don't understand. And, and, and none, of, none of our boys would understand that if, we, if I use that language. And so we have to understand that we have to consider people in the stage, age of life that they're in and be able to share the gospel in a way that resonates with them and that resonates with their age and stage of life. It even happens in, we even take into consideration even in missions. I'll, I'll give you another, another example from, from Ecuador. Is that in the particular village that we were uh, that we were working in? Is that they had a big um, shamanism was kind of a big thing in their village. And if you don't know what shamanism is, is basically there's a shaman that interacts with the spiritual world, uh, with demons and spirits, and does healings and things like that. And so we're entering into an environment that we don't deal with shamanism here. I don't I don't know a whole lot of shamans in Baton Rouge that you can call up. And so we have to go in with that knowledge of like, hey, they, they've been entrenched in shamanism for a long time. What can we do to adapt and address those issues? And so we spent time in the gospel accounts where Jesus shows that he has power over demons and over spirits and things like that, whereas shamans do not. And so, see, adaptable but not compromisable is that we have to adapt to people in their situations. We can't be inflexible in our approach and I think too often, and this is Wes McKay speaking out of personal conviction. This is me saying, I, "This is where I failed," is that too often I am inflexible in my approach with sharing the gospel with people. Is that I think, I, I think you, hey, you man, you got to meet me where I'm at. I can't meet you where you're at. If I'm going to share the gospel with you, it's going to be on my ta- timetable, it's going to be on my terms, and it's going to be on my turf. If, it's, if you're not going to agree to those three criteria, I ain't sharing the gospel with you. That's inflexible. That's not adaptable. That's stubborn and disobedient. And so, we cannot take a position of inflexibility in our approach, because Jesus doesn't have that approach in His own ministry. Jesus doesn't take that approach, right? He has the approach of, I'll meet you where you're at. He goes and he walks around town. He meets people in the marketplace. He meets people in the wilderness, right? And he uses metaphors and imagery and illustrations that resonate with people. Agricultural metaphors and illustrations to resonate with the people and what they do. He doesn't speak in these high lofty terms. No, he says, seeds. Mustard seeds. He speaks of trees, fig trees. Things that they would understand. That is adapting. And ultimately, when we think about adaptability and accommodation, ultimately, isn't this a core component of the gospel itself? Is that God condescended to man. What John 1.14 says is that He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's condescension. That's accommodating, right? That Jesus spoke in our language. He wept. He suffered. He was a baby born of a woman under the law. That's accommodating. The gospel is about accommodation. Is that God condescends and comes to us and meets us where we're at, in our sin? Is that what Romans 5 says? Is that Jesus didn't come to us when we were in our best state. Jesus didn't come to us when we were in our perfection. Jesus didn't come to us when we were in no need of him. He came to us in our greatest time of need. He accommodated to us in our need. And so this is what Paul means by saying, it's because of the gospel why he accommodates and why he's adaptable. But what we must also be careful of on the other side is this, yes, we must be adaptable but we must not be compromisable in our gospel. And so, what does this look like? How do we know the line between adapting for our audience, adapting for the people that we're sharing the gospel with, uh, accommodating to them, and then compromising? And I think there's two factors that we have to think about when we compromise the message. And this is two factors that Paul never did. Wherever he was, he accommodated, but he never compromised what he was saying to them. And this is two things that we must think about is this. What's the line between adaptation, accommodation, and compromising? Well, when, here's one, when the message changes. When the message changes, in its content, in its very core, we know that we are now compromising. Well, I can't talk about sin. I can't talk about hell. I can't talk about wrath. I can't talk about justice. That'll turn people away. I can't do that. That won't win people. That is compromise. We can't compromise. Because if we compromise, we're doing no good to win some to the gospel. We're actually doing what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for in Matthew 22. I mean, you're a blind person leading blind people into a hole. That's what we do when we compromise the message. That's what compromise is, is when the message changes. Here's the second thing. Is how we compromise when the method the method distorts or undermines the message that's compromising when the way in which we communicate, the method that we use to reach people with the gospel, it can also undermine and distort the message and thereby compromising is that we call you know I've told you all this story of me being in an experience where the ministry, everybody who comes and whoever brings the most friends, everybody gets an iPod. You get an iPod. And you know how many people were there the next week? They were all gone. Because what you win people with is what you win them to. What you win people with is what you win them to. We got a lot of salvations for iPods that week. But not many for Jesus. And so when our method distorts the message, it is compromised. Even on the other side, the fear and guilt tactic to win people to the gospel. Many of you may have grown up in a hellfire and brimstone church at some point where you may have went up to the altar 23 times that week. You went back, you came up, went back to your seat, came back up again because you, you felt the Spirit convict you again, went back to your seat, got to the parking lot, came back you know, to the altar. You may have had that experience. Where fear and guilt are the tactic in which to get people saved. And that you're not actually winning them to Jesus. You're just, you're just trying to get them to avoid hell. Scare, them, scare the hell out of them. Right? And so you're actually not winning them to Jesus and the gospel of grace that he offers to sinners. You just don't want to do go to hell. And so you can see how the tactics and methods can actually distort the message and actually be the compromise. And so I would say, church, whatever approach that we take, whether it's in your personal uh, ministry to other people and that you have around you or in as a church, we must be careful. We must be adaptable. But we must not be compromisable. We must not. And so this is Paul's strategic approach here in reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that he becomes things in order to gain people, all for the sake of the gospel. But to do that, is that requires incredible diligence and discipline on his part, right? Incredible spiritual discipline. And this is what he's going to talk about in these last verses, in verses 24 through 27. This is the second point. Paul's spiritual discipline. In order for him to be strategic in his mission, he must be spiritually disciplined in his approach. You know, we saw a lot of discipline in the past month or so with the Olympics. Isn't that crazy, just those athletes? The discipline that they, they go through and just with their eating and training and watching film and practice. Uh, I read a couple articles this week about the daily routine of a, an Olympic athlete. I'll just be honest with you. I'm like, I'm done at 9.30 with their routine. I'm like, this is too much. You know, I've, I've, never, I've never done this amount of exercise in my whole life with what you've accomplished from 5.30 to 9.30. And it just amazes me how these people can, they give their lives over to this one sport, whether it be gymnastics, rowing, um, uh, skateboarding, whatever it may be, basketball, is that they just pour themselves in, training, eating, dieting, practice, routines, all that. It's discipline, isn't it, to be an Olympic athlete? It's discipline. What I would say this is what Paul's getting at here in these final verses is this, is that the discipline required of every follower of Jesus Christ is even more intense than any olympic athlete and the reason is is because the prize is more important let me say that again real quick that the discipline required of every follower of jesus christ is even more intense than an olympic athlete because the prize that we are pursuing is that much more important let's consider this looking at these verses is that he begins in verse 24 Do you not know that in a race all runners run? And so we've seen this language before. That The Christian life is often referred to as a race, as a marathon in a sense. And we see this from Hebrews chapter 12, if you remember those verses. You know, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a marathon. It is about running and being diligent and enduring the race. But Paul says this, yes, is that we run, we race, but not all receive a prize. But only one receives the prize, right? Only one. This isn't upward soccer where everybody's a winner and everybody gets a trophy, right? God doesn't give out or hand out participation trophies. You get one just for participating. That's not how it is. And there's even not if we run, right? There's not even a conditional statement there. If we run, no. The assumption is, is not... And the question is not if we run or not. The question in this Christian life is this. How do you run and do you finish? That's the question. It's not if you run. It's how you run and if you finish or not. And so in order to finish, Paul's saying this, in order to finish and run well, required of you is this, discipline. Spiritual discipline. This is what is required of us. And he says this. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control. And then he goes on verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. If you see in your, your Bibles, there might be some, some, uh, a footnote to say, but it's actually pummel my body and make it a slave. I beat my body in order to get it to do what I want so that I can continue running how I should and finish like I should. This is what's required of us. Just as Olympic athletes are able to have complete control over their bodies, whatever they're doing, even their own diets and things like that, is that this is what is required of us, that we beat our bodies, we discipline them, we have self-control in what we do in order that we may continue running faithfully in this. Richard Hayes says it really well, listen to this quote, to enslave the body means, in this context, to devote it unreservedly to God's service through service to others, not to practice self-denial for its own sake. So what does it mean to beat my body, to make it my slave? Is that you are giving yourself over completely, unreservedly to God and His will and His mission. And that you will do whatever it takes to continue staying steadfast and running faithfully towards that and in that mission that God has set out. But what does that look like? What does that require of us, this discipline? Well, it's what we said in Hebrews chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight, right? In order for us to run well in this this marathon of faith, this race to the eternal reward, it's going to require us, what Paul says, putting sin to death, removing obstacles that we put up in our own lives, and maybe even obstacles that we put up in other people's lives from running well, from pursuing the prize. Putting away things that might hinder us and hinder others from finishing well. That's what this whole thing is about. This is what's going to be required of us, church. Is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are running this race, then to run this race and to finish well, to run well and finish well, it's going to require you to put to death things that you may even enjoy, that being sin. It's going to require you to put things to death in a way that are part of your old past life before Christ. It's going to require you to put to death things that, man, they have a tug on your heart. It's going to require you to throw your idols in the fire. All for the sake of unreservedly giving yourself over to the mission of Jesus Christ. Because this, we are aiming for the finish line when we do this. We're aiming for the finish line. That we don't discipline ourselves and do the spiritual discipline in vain or aimlessly. That's what he says. I don't, you know, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box like shadow boxing beating the air. As though there's no purpose in my training. As though there's no purpose in my practice or anything like that. No, the goal of the race is to obtain something. I don't know if I ever um, have discussed with you all my spectacular track um, career but it was spectacular. Spectacularly bad. Uh, I have told the youth many times, the uh, if you want to hear these funny stories, I, I pole vaulted and I ran the 800 in high school. I mean, my mom wouldn't even show up to the meets. It's that bad. It was that bad. She disowned me as her son after one. So that's not my son. That, that kid's got a problem but when i ran track my favorite part of the race was drinking water afterwards <laughs> and that's only if i crossed the line <laughs> if i fi- finished the race as that even then when we you know our coach would tell us when we ran keep your eyes not on the finish line but even after the finish line don't look down you know looking at your feet but look past the finish line to where you'll be running Keeping your eyes fixed on there. And that is what Paul is trying to say for us. Is that the goal of running is to obtain the prize. To obtain what it says the imperishable wreath. Is that runners run. And he's referring to like Olympian athletes here. Is that runners they run. They run to receive a perishable wreath. A, 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 a crown of leaves that says that they're the winner. But that instantly after time fades. And the equivalent for us is this. Trophies. Medals rings, letterman jackets. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't pulled out my letterman jacket in years. Mainly because there's really nothing to be proud of, right? And so we have these perishable objects that they perish or they go out of style and things like that. But Paul's saying this is that you don't have something like that that you keep your eyes on. You have something that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, what First Peter says. The imperishable prize, an inheritance. And so we, yes, the athlete, they seek a prize that is imperishable. But but we, the Christian, we seek an imperishable prize. And that is why we should run with such greater endurance and greater discipline, because our prize is so much better than anything this earth can offer. And so for us, what is this? What is this prize for the faithful runner? It's this what Paul says in 2nd. Timothy 4, 6, 3, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who loved his appearing. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. The last one is this. John 17, 3. Something we just prayed. And this is the eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, in Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. Here's the prize of the Christian life. It's not trophies. It's not medals. It's not rings. It's not leather jackets. It's this. It's Jesus himself. That is our greatest prize that no race in this earth can offer you. But the race of faith can offer you if you run and finish well. Is that you will be rewarded on the last day with this crown of righteousness by the king of righteousness. And you will be fully and completely satisfied in him. That is our prize, church. It's a prize that will never fade for all of eternity. Our prize and our inheritance in Christ Jesus will always completely satisfy us, unlike any ring, trophy, or medal does in this world. That is our prize, is Jesus Himself. But there is a warning here. Yes, Paul's saying, saying, yes, run the race. The prize is the best. Run well. Discipline your bodies in these things. Be disciplined. But he says this, be warned. There is potential for disqualification. Look at what he says in the last word. I discipline my body, verse 27, and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Say what, Paul? Say what? You just you just brought it down to to level zero. We were really excited. We are like, yeah, I'm going to discipline my body. Yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to be disciplined, spiritual, you know, I'm, I'm going to do these things, man. I'm going to run well. I'm going to finish well. And then you throw in this thing about disqualification. What are you talking about, Paul? And you're worried about disqualification? What about me? Right? You're Paul. And you're worried about disqualification? I'm Wes. I mean, golly. I'm, I should be really worried. Right? And we get these examples in Scripture, these warning passages, particularly in, in the book of Hebrews, these warning passages. And Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourselves so that you may pass the test. Same word here, pass the test. And so the purpose of these, this language, this warning language about disqualification it's to show us the real possibility, the real possibility of not finishing well. It's to show us the real possibility of not finishing well. And it's to also to, it's to shock us out of spiritual apathy. If you ever have seen somebody, unfortunately, the, uh, I've, I have seen somebody had the defibrillator used on them. Um, and, and they come back to life. They were, they were incapacitated in some sense and they were shocked and they came back to life. And this is what these, these passages, these warning passages in the Bible are meant to do. They're like spiritual defibrillators. They're meant to shock you so that you come back to reality, spiritual reality. That you come back into life and say, oh man, I've I got to get on the horse. I'm, I've been doing this all wrong. I've been, I've been really apathetic here. I've been really kind of under, God, just being passive and doing nothing. So these passages, when you hear about disqualification, Paul talking about this, it's not to send you into a frenzy of doubt and anxiety, like "Oh man, am I saved?" and begin questioning your assurance and things like that. That's not what the intent of these passages are. The intent of these passages are is to shock you out of spiritual apathy, where you begin to self-evaluate and say, "Am I running well right now? Am I running the race of faith well? Am I am I on the trajectory right now of finishing this race well?" And so allow this last line in verse 27 to shock all of us to say, am I running the race well? And am I, am, I, am, am I pursuing Jesus Christ? Am I on track to finish this well? They're not meant to scare us. They're meant to sh- shock us. And so with this, verses 24 through 27, we see, we're going to see two different types of people here that Paul saying this to the Corinthians because there must be a problem with spiritual discipline. And so there's two types of people in this church, in this world, if you're in Christ Jesus, is that we have the spiritually disciplined and then we have the spiritually lethargic. Spiritual discipline is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Is that what, what Paul and what the scriptures are telling us to be a part of is to discipline ourselves. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I'm a Christian, but I, I, what does it mean to be disciplined, to have spiritual discipline in my life? Well, there's a great book that I would encourage you to read, um, The Twelve Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. And he lists out things and patterns and routines that should be part of the Christian life because they're outlined in Scripture. Like reading Scripture, daily devotions, that should be the pattern of our Christian lives. Prayer should be the pattern of our Christian life. That's two spiritual disciplines. Worship, corporate and individual, should be part of our Christian life. Evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting. These are are different traits that should be part of the Christian life. And that this is how we discipline ourselves. And so, discipline, as we've already talked about, isn't just about doing things. It's also about having self-control, what Paul says here, and refraining from things that may hinder you in this race. And too often, I think, as individuals, we give in to way too many temptations that we shouldn't, and they actually distract us from running the race well. So right now, I would just like to ask you a question. Is that, Right now, think through this. Are you giving into every temptation that is presented to you? If so, that's distracting you from the race, from the prize. And maybe right now, maybe you're thinking, maybe you need to think through, what right now is, is keeping me from running well? Is there a situation or a person or, or an environment in my life that is keeping me from running the race faithfully and enduring and that is putting me on a trajectory to finish well. Are there areas in your life? Are there relationships in your life? Are there settings in your life that is harming or creating obstacles for that? Or even a better question, in this context, as Paul's thinking about surrendering his rights for the sake of others, are you, not just are, are, do you have obstacles that you've created in your life that are hindering you from running, but are you putting obstacles in other people's way from running the race well? is that we often think about things that are being done to us and think about what's happening to us and the problems other people are causing us. But maybe think through your life right now. Are you right now putting obstacles in the way of other people that are hindering them from running well in this race? That's what Paul is wanting us to get get at. So we have spiritually disciplined people, but then we have the 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 people who might be spiritually lethargic, even in here. We love to procrastinate, don't we? We love to procrastinate. If I can do it, if I can do it tomorrow, when am I gonna do it? Tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes, if I can do it the next day, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do it the next day. If I can do it next week, I'll do it next week. Think about if an Olympic athlete thought like that. The Olympics are in four years. I'll start training, I'll start training next month. Okay. They get next month, you know what, it's it's still three, four, almost three years away. Three years and 11 months. I'll, I'll wait next year. I'll start next year. Give me. Okay. And then next year comes around. You know what, I, I think one year of training will probably do. One year of training. Okay, fine, fine. One year of training. You know what, maybe six months. Six, six months is fine. That'll put me in my prime. You know what? Then six months gets there. You know what, probably a week ahead of time I, I could probably get, get what I need to done. I, I, uh, and then a week ahead comes time. You know what? I think if I stretch right before the meet, I should be fine. You know, do a couple of these right before a 100-meter dash. Really, I, I'll be fine. I, third place will be fine. I'll take a bronze, you know? Think about if an Olympic athlete thought, about, thought that way. It wouldn't be okay for an Olympic athlete to do that. You'd be embarrassed, right? And I'm fearful that the same thing can happen on Judgment Day is that we have gotten maybe into a spiritual procrastination or lethargicness where we think, you know what, yeah, I'll get into that n- next week. I'll, I'll get back into church tomorrow, you know, uh, next month. Or, or, you know, I'll start my devot- reading plan when January comes around. I'll start back th- that up in January when, the, when your you know, thing comes. Or, you know what, I- I'll, I'll pray just before meals and things like that. Spiritual procrastination and being lethargic is incredibly dangerous, church. And that we continue to procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate until judgment day comes and we're standing there saying, I'm embarrassed. My sins are ever before me. I shouldn't have kicked the can down the road for so long. Because lack of spiritual discipline is due to indifference or unbelief of the potential of disqualification. We either don't believe it or we don't think it's that serious. We believe that God really doesn't care or take seriously our lack of self-discipline. And let me, let me tell you this. God does care about our lack of spiritual discipline, church. And on Judgment Day, we will have to answer for that. And so I would just warn us all, take Paul's warning here of disqualification. Let it be a shock to your system to say, I have to stop right now procrastinating. I have to stop being lethargic in my spiritual discipline. And I must run this race well so that I may finish well and receive the prize that is kept in heaven for me. With our eyes fixed on the eternal things. And so if you're running this race and you feel like you have failed so many times as I, if you feel like, man, I, I've disqualified myself already and I, I can't, I'm so disqualified, I can't even get into the race. Let me just say this for you. The gospel gives hope to weary runners who may have been disqualified. Is that Jesus, what Hebrews 12 says, is that Jesus has run the race for us. He has run the race for us. Is that Jesus has come and He has met us in our humanity. He's met us in our sin. He's met us in our transgression. God became man in the person of Christ to save us from our sin. That He has run the race set before Him, as Hebrew 12 says. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He has run the race before him. He has finished. He has crossed the line. And now he is victorious. And now if if you are in Christ Jesus, you get to benefit from the victory that is found in Christ Jesus for finishing that race. That the victory and its benefits can come to even you, us sinners, who feel like we've been disqualified. Who feel like we've sinned and we've taken ourselves out of the running this morning if you feel like there's no way you can get back on track, there's no way that you can get back in this race, that you have taken yourself completely out of the competition, and there is no way to get back in, let me tell you this. You have time. And that Christ welcomes you this morning. And that He has run the race by living the obedient life that we should have lived, by dying the death that we deserve, taking on our sin and our transgression and all of our disqualification. And He was raised from the dead and He ascended on high and now He reigns victoriously. This morning you can have victory in Christ Jesus because He has run the race for you. And now He has given you the power by His Spirit to run the race well. And He's also provided us the example. That's what it says here in Hebrews 12 is that He has given us the example of how to run faithfully this race, this morning. I encourage you, non-believer, unbeliever in here, is that you are not so disqualified that Christ cannot reach to you. And believer, if you are in here and you feel like you have failed so many times, remember, you are now in a new status in Christ Jesus who has won the victory for you and He has given you everything you need to run the race well. Let us discipline our bodies and set our eyes on the eternal reward that is kept in heaven for us. Let us pray. God, we love You. We thank You for this day. We thank You for the grace that Christ gives us, God, to run the race well. And I pray that we would fight against spiritual procrastination and being lethargic, God. And that we would set our eyes, focus in on Christ Jesus, who is our example and our reward in this life. It's in Jesus' name I pray.